and welcome to this week's episode of the Hammer Time Podcast. I'm your host, Ethan Hammerman. We're on Playmaker Mentality. We're on iTunes talking about sports, society, and stuff each and every week. This is a really great episode, something really important, something that we haven't talked about on the show, surprisingly enough, and I think given what has happened in the world recently and also the fact that it is Pride Week in New York this week, which will be really exciting, it made a lot of sense to have my very good friend, writer at RotoViz, doer of other things and podcasts and whatnot, 14 Team Mocker on the show. Mocker, how are things going? I'm good. How are you? I'm great. I'm very happy to have you on. So it's cool. it's cool to do a podcast that's not strictly about fantasy and is with someone that, like, you know, I know in real life. And, you know, we can talk about, like, you know, on a personal level. And, yeah, I'm excited. Yeah, and I think we have a lot of ground to cover. Uh, this is going to be a really great podcast. I think it's going to be one of my best, to be honest. So hopefully I haven't set the expectations too high, but we'll see what happens. So we're going to start with the sports portion, and this is a question I ask pretty much everyone on my show when they first come on. What made you originally love sports? So I was trying to think about back to when I was younger, and I don't think there was a time when I ever really loved sports. Uh, the latest I played any organized sport was football um, until freshman year of high school. And, um, sophomores, you know, once you, once you become a sophomore, you have to practice with the varsity, which is double sessions in the summer with weightlifting in between the double sessions. And I was like, hell no. <laughs> and I, um, I would have also had to put on a bit of weight. I was pretty scrawny and I played offensive line and I did not want, I had no interest in that. Um, I stopped playing basketball when I didn't make my middle school basketball team. I stopped playing baseball when the kids started to be able to throw it hard enough that it would hurt. Um, I stopped playing soccer when I was like six years old. Um, so I don't think I was ever really, I don't think I ever really have loved sports. I am crazy competitive and I really like games, especially logic based, turn based games. Um, and, uh, I think fantasy football is actually kind of like a perfect game. I'm not all that into football, the sport, but fantasy football, the game is unbelievably awesome. At least for me. So moving on from that, if you're not a huge sports fan, what got you into fantasy? Was it just the competitive spirit or was it something else? Um, in 2005, my friend was running a league. He had tried to get me in it in 2004, too. Um, he just knew that I would really like it. Um, but I wasn't actually watching football at that time. I, um, I probably couldn't tell you much more than, you know, what an average person would know, what they hear about. And I was really hesitant and I was like, I don't really want to do this. And he was like, you'll, you know, you will love it. And then the next year he, he tried really hard to convince me in 2005 and that was the first season I played. Um, and I had actually played once in the late nineties out of a newspaper with my brother. That was really funny. Uh, we made up our own terrible rules. Um, so he got me into it and that was actually a reason to start watching football again, and I really enjoyed it on a level I did not previously. 
And um, there was also a certain amount of camaraderie because I knew everyone else in the league and we lived all over the country and we didn't really have an excuse to talk to each other other than that. So it was nice to, to stay friendly with people that I knew um, that way. And I just I got crazy addicted to the game of fantasy because I'm so competitive. Once I started playing, I had to win. Over time, since you've been playing now for 10 years, which is a long time, what things have you learned over your time as a fantasy football player that you have utilized in future seasons to make your teams more effective? Um, people, I, I, people have the shortest memories to a major fault, and um, the, one of the main concepts that I write about is um, exploiting something called the decency bias, which... Um, it's, there's also what's called primacy bias. You tend to remember what you've seen most recently um, and what, what you've seen over and over again, like a highlight. And I learned over time that that is a major weakness people have. And if you can sort of forget the very recent past and remember everything before that and make your decision based on that, you will be much more successful than the average person who – In the nine months, you know, of the offseason, people convince themselves of these things so steadfastly that it's very easy to take advantage of it. So what was your greatest fantasy victory? So I did not look these up, and I wanted to see how well I could remember them off the top of my head. Um, My friend, um, his his name on Twitter is Incredulous. is uh, in 2009, I believe it was week five or week seven. I did not look this up. Um, uh, Jason Witten was on a bye week, and Tony Scheffler was playing the Chargers. And at that time, the Chargers were the worst team against the tight end. And Tony Scheffler was the tight end on Denver, and he was um, on our waiver wire. And he had the craziest career game where he had this long touchdown up the sidelines. And I came into that, and it was on Monday Night Football, and I came into the game by like 20 points. And my only chance was this guy who was like my backup tight end out of desperation. And I remember just this miraculous play where he ran up at the sidelines. And if I'm remembering it correctly, they were wearing those hideous yellow uniforms with the brown stripe socks. And I just remember that was the first time that I played fantasy and I had that rush of, oh, my God, I can't believe what I'm watching and I'm going to win a game because of it. And the way it worked out, and one of the reasons I remember it so well, is because that game ended up setting up the final standings in a way that I won the championship because of where I was in the playoffs. And had I lost that game, I figured out after the season, I would not have won. So that sticks out in my mind quite a bit. Um, the one that's more recent that people might actually remember, on Sunday night football this past season, the Patriots played the Texans, and Logan Ryan gave – Logan Ryan is so criminally underrated as a cornerback, and he played unbelievably well against DeAndre Hopkins. I could not believe what I was watching, how well he was playing. And I was in a two-week playoff where I needed DeAndre Hopkins to not score six points. And Logan Ryan was on him like I could not believe and held him in check all game. And then at the very, very end, there was a little 15-yard pass that uh, the Patriots would have been better off letting DeAndre Hopkins catch it. It would have taken more time off the clock and ended the game sooner. 
and Logan Ryan was like not happening. And even in a very soft defense, got his hand in front of the ball and knocked it out of his hand. And I ended up winning that game by less than a point in a two-week playoff. And Logan Ryan is like going to be my favorite player until he retires because of it. I, it was so cool. I remember, and actually, I, my best win. It was the championship in 2012, I believe, and I I definitely was 2012 because the year after I wasn't playing Yahoo, and this was a Yahoo league because we had team defenses, and my opponent had a really, really good week, and I remember that Justin Bethel from the Cardinals got a field goal block touchdown that gave the Arizona special teams, like, an extra seven points. And so I was down by about 40 points, and the only game left was Seattle-San Francisco and Russell Wilson threw six touchdown passes in that game, and I won by one point. (laughs) That was the most trolling win of a fantasy championship I think I've ever had in my entire life. I was laughing so hard. My friend still... To this day, it does not let me forget it. It was crazy. Something happened similar like that to me. Um, I was in a, a sports book in Lake Tahoe, and um, I I had bet on the the Bengals to cover the spread against the Colts. This would have been 2011, and um, the Colts were driving, and the Bengals were letting them, you know, drive but run out the clock, and they were going to win by slightly less than the spread. And I forget who it was on the courts. I want to say that was the, the Curtis Peter era or whatever. Oh, God. We made, we made some terrible mistake, and Carlos Dunlap picked up a fumble and had one of those crazy highlight slow-motion runs towards the other side of the field to cover. So on the flip side, what was your biggest fantasy defeat ever, or what were your biggest fantasy defeats? Okay, and again, I didn't look these up, and people can, can believe that or not, but that's how vividly these stick out in my mind, because they, they are just so crushing. Um, week 14, 2014, in my oldest league, um, I came into Monday Night Football, which was the Packers against the Falcons, and it was about zero degrees out, I remember, and it was supposed to snow. And I had Jordy Nelson, and my opponent had, who was a very good friend of mine that I used to live with, and she chooses her fantasy team based on who is the hottest. Uh, that's how much she knows about football. And um, she had Julio Jones, and I had Jordy Nelson. And I was down by about 20, but I figured, because I don't, I, I remember looking it up, I don't think Julio Jones had ever played in snow in his life. And... Um, I said, you know, I could pull this out. And I started to pull it out, and then Julio Jones made Sam Shields look like some kind of high school player. He was toying with him. He had over 200 yards. It was absolutely devastating. And I ended up losing that game. Jordy Nelson still had, like, 28 points. I ended up losing that game 181 to 167. And the other playoff game finished 109 to 108. And that was just crushing. And another one that really sticks out is week 15, 2013, Monday Night Football, Matthew Stafford against the Ravens in Detroit. He needed nine points. He was averaging, I think, 16 
and he scored 7.2. And it was just the most brutal kind of game where I still could have won up until the very, very last drive, and he threw just the, the dumbest throws. And it, uh, I, have, I don't think I've ever been angrier watching a football game than that. And I'm never really going to forgive Matthew Stafford for it either. Um, and then the one, the most recent one, that um, was against my, one of my very, very good friends, who is this brilliant guy um, who told me about Bitcoins when they were like a dollar and was like, you have to buy this, and told me about 3D printing years before I heard about it anywhere else. And I, I told him he sounded high. And he's not an obsessive fantasy football player. He's just really, really smart and casually likes football and is obsessive about the Broncos. And week 16, 2014, we were in a championship game together, and I had Jeremy Hill and Demarius Thomas, and he had the Broncos defense and C.J. Anderson. And right at the beginning of the game, Akeem Tlaib did not intercept the ball. It was very very clear on replay that the point of the ball was pinned against the ground and he picked it up and ran in the end zone and they gave him a touchdown and based on how reviews had been going that season, I knew the call was going to stand. It wasn't going to be confirmed, but it was going to stand. They were going to say there wasn't enough to overturn it. And I was texting my friend immediately as it happened. He did not intercept that ball. You can see the point of it touch the ground. This is so ridiculous, and I know the call is going to stand, and I hate you, and you better win this game by more than the eight points you're getting for this play. And I was just sitting there, and it seemed like it took forever, and I was just stewing, and eventually it came out, you know, call stands. And I was just swearing up a storm through text message with my friend, and... The very next play, or another play after that, but the very next drive, Jeremy Hill had this 80-yard touchdown, which was like Marshawn Lynch's earthquake run, where it was just like he was not going to be denied. And that got me all those points right back. And my friend was like, I bet you feel pretty stupid now. And I was like, no, I'm still really pissed off because Akeem Talib did not intercept that. And um, later in the game, they tried to throw to Demarius Thomas three straight times in the end zone on this little short, um, like, uh, you know, go up and get it ball that Adam Gase would run to Demarius Thomas. And one thing Demarius Thomas isn't great at is going up and high-pointing a ball. And he got pass interference on one of them, and on the other two he didn't catch it. And then C.J. Anderson ran in for the one-yard touchdown. And my friend got six points, but I didn't. And he ended up winning that game by four points. And I still say to him to this day, randomly, I'll always just say to him, Akeem Tlaib didn't intercept that ball. And um, he's on Bottom Fed Buddha on Twitter if um, anyone wants to tweet at him that Akeem Tlaib did not intercept that ball. <laughs> Bottom Fed Buddha. But I'm not upset about it. I hope you're not. I can tell you're not upset about it. I can tell <laughs> that you, you're very, very fine with it. So... Last year, what was your best fantasy call? Um, it was definitely Brandon Marshall. Uh, every team that I had that won money or won a championship uh, had Brandon Marshall on it. Uh, he was going as wide receiver 25, and my I did very simple research that said if he stays healthy, that's insanely low. 
and he stayed healthy and ended up not only as the wide receiver three last season, the only wide receivers who scored more fantasy points were Antonio Brown and Julio Jones. Um, he had the best season fantasy point-wise this century of anyone 31 or older, which is how old he was. And um, something actually that we've talked about um, internally at Rotoviz is that a lot of times people want to say calls were right, but then when you go back and look at the reasoning, the reasoning wasn't right, but the call was right. And that's a weird thing that people take credit for. And, you know, don't do that. Don't bring attention to the fact that you got lucky. And that was one call that I actually got right and my reasoning was right. And I just felt so vindicated and rewarded for it. And yeah, he was awesome. I love Brandon Marshall. He's a, he's a great guy. Um, his, his mental awareness, everything he does. Um, I really like Brandon Marshall. And moving on to 2016 to end out this segment, who are three players that you like more than the norm? Um, T.Y. Hilton, Kendall Wright, and Vincent Jackson, which, again, speaks to not, you know, taking advantage of people's short memories. What do you think of the Tyler Lockett take that's been coming out recently? I'm personally a fan, but my big thing is I think that Russ is going to spread his touchdowns around, but Lockett is definitely his receiver one, so I think he'll put up some big numbers. I'm not sure his touchdown numbers will be that great. So, um... One thing that I actually pointed out that people don't really seem to realize is that um, Matt Harmon, who I love, I love him, Matt, um, he, um, his reception perception isn't a fantasy-based thing. It's a, it's a mm. real-life football evaluation about, about route running. And people assume it's a fantasy thing, and it's not. And it's, it's confusing to me. Um, I don't know where people are getting the idea Tyler Lockett would be the number one wide receiver on Seattle in snaps, in targets, in catches, in touchdowns. None of that makes sense to me. Um, I think it's very obviously Doug Baldwin, and I would be far more surprised by Tyler Lockett outperforming Doug Baldwin than I would be by Jermaine Curse outperforming Tyler Lockett. And... Um, Seattle has very low passing volume and they don't really have the need to throw a lot late in games when defenses are soft, when they're losing big, they don't often find themselves in that situation. And Russell Wilson is so good that he actually produces the most fantasy points for the people catching the ball per throw, but their volume is still so low that it's a it's a large gap to make up since some teams who aren't very good but have to throw the ball so often that the fantasy scores make up for that. And um, I I will definitely bow down to Matt and believe that Tyler Lockett is an exceptional route runner, but his price in fantasy is well above what I would be willing to pay for someone in his situation at this point. And by that same token, I know that you have – a weird loathing for Mike Evans. And yes, I'm did. hoping that you could explain here why he's just so bad to you, because I don't, I don't get it. I don't loathe Mike Evans. I loathe Mike Evans fans. And the reason is Mike Evans has always been overdrafted. He was assumed to have a huge role in that offense in his rookie season, and he actually had a, a surprisingly large role. 
Um, he didn't play football until late in, in college. He, he had never played football before. And he's an exceptional athlete, but just watching him, you can tell he doesn't, he, his football game is not very refined. Um, especially as a rookie, it was really obvious. And headed into last season, he was getting drafted at this insane price, which ended up really hurting people who did draft him at that price. And I, my whole thing was Vincent Jackson is this team's number one wide receiver. He out-targeted Mike, Mike Evans in his rookie year. And as long as Vincent Jackson is on this team, he's going to out-snap out him and out-target him because he's a much superior football player. Um, Vincent Jackson has had, uh, in my opinion, the third most impressive career of any active wide receiver um, at least fantasy point-wise, uh, how many points he's produced over how long of a period he's done it, other than Brandon Marshall and Larry Fitzgerald. I think number three for me would be uh, Vincent Jackson. And over Steve Smith? What's that? Over Steve Smith? Yeah, Steve Smith didn't have the consistency that Vincent Jackson did for quite a period um, in the middle of his career. Um but the the um yeah so I I can't stand how people hyped Mike Evans up so much and when you would you would explain to them you know a very reasonable argument that he's not going to play over Vincent Jackson like his time to shine he's so young and he's so raw his time to shine is probably after Vincent Jackson moved on which should be after this season um a lot of people are actually surprised they're paying out his contract this year um and you know when that day comes. That's fine when Mike Evans is of the age and the experience that wide receivers deserve to be taken in the first or second round of fantasy. He wasn't there last year, and I still don't think he's there. And, um, yeah, people are a little over-exuberant when someone, you know, is a, a very large person and crushes the combine People and gets drafted very, very highly. People tend to be a little too excited a little too soon about it. That sounds very fair. We are going to move on to the society portion of this podcast, and we're going to talk about being gay. So this should be interesting. So, of course, the Pulse shooting happened uh, two Saturdays and Sundays ago, and I know that you wrote a really great piece about it. And just before getting to that and tackling that a little bit more explicitly and the reactions that you saw to it, why don't you talk about your own experience and why the pole shooting impacted you so much. Um, I uh, was intensely positive and ashamed of who I was. Uh, I I thought for a long time that I was bisexual and that I didn't have to tell anyone and I could just date women, and it would be my little secret that I never acted on, and I would live out a normal life with a wife and kids, and no one would ever know. And then um, as I got older, um, through high school, I tried very hard to date my best friend, which, um, for those who don't know, is actually something fairly common that um, positive gay guys do. They try to date their best female friend in high school. Um and they convince themselves that they're in love with them in a romantic way. And um, it did not go well, uh, <laughs> to say the least. And 
when I went away to college, I, I had kind of severed that relationship and she rekindled it after I was in college and I was no better off as far as accepting myself or realizing who I was. And so I very foolishly entered into a long distance relationship while I, while I was a freshman in college and that went as poorly as it did in high school. And we ended up severing the relationship for good after my freshman year of college. And I sort of had to admit to myself that I didn't want to be with her. And it wasn't her. It was that I didn't want to be with any woman. It was, I was very gay. And needed to admit it to myself and get over it. And it took another three to four years to admit that to my friends and my family. And so I wasn't really out of the closet until I was around 23 or 24. And at that point, you've pretended for so long and you've been so overly cautious over doing anything that makes it appear that you're gay or you're effeminate that I really had to get out of a, a, a mode of behavior that I came off very, very straight. And I remember when I first would kind of like smile at guys that were obviously gay, they would give me this look like, is this person about to like say something really homophobic to me? And I realized like, I really don't know what I'm doing. I don't know how to be gay. And that took a long time to figure out and to figure out how to be comfortable in my own skin. And not only, um, you know, be gay enough for the gay world, but, still retain who I was and not try to be something I'm not and not make people uncomfortable by expressing my sexuality. And it is more complicated and more difficult than people realize. Um, and the thing I kept thinking about with this shooting was that not only are people going to be afraid to come out, people are going to be afraid to accept themselves. People are going to be afraid to go to gay clubs their parents are going to be scared for them. People are going to be scared to tell their parents they're gay because their parents are going to worry something like this might happen. And being in the closet and denying who you are and pretending to be something you're not is crippling beyond words. It, 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 it is horrible for your mental and emotional health, but it's also horrible for your physical health. And I, it, it, it absolutely breaks my heart that what happened in Orlando will keep people from, from moving forward in a healthy way as far as who they are. And it, it makes me incredibly sad and angry to think about um, the, 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 the just widespread ramifications of what happened. And that's, that's on a personal level. Um, on, on another level, the idea that, that 49 people who I identify with as, as young gay men were, were murdered in such a horrific way for no reason. Uh, it, it feels like an attack on, on everything I am, everyone I know. Um, and it, 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 it is just chilling to, to the core to feel like who I am was targeted in such a hateful and violent way. And it, it's really just a very scary reminder that people harbor this sort of resentment and hate wherever it comes from. And it, it's, it's, it's very disturbing. It's, it's very disturbing to think about. And I, I just, my heart just breaks for 
everyone that knew anyone that was in Orlando, anyone who was related to those people, anyone that, that you know, feels like, like it could have been them. And my, I just, I, I can't describe how upsetting and how hurt I, I am for those people. I mean, I think you summed it up pretty well. I actually disagree with something that you said, but I think we're going we're to get to it a little bit later, but I think one of the biggest lessons that we'll learn about this, and I want you to talk about your article a little bit, is just how important it is to be open about yourself if you have the flexibility and security to do it, because there's so many people who really do look up to you and will reach out to you and they'll entrust you with secrets and they'll confide in you uh, when you sort of make yourself known and, and tell the world who you are. Because I think that there is still a stigma, unconscious or not, that in certain spaces uh, it, it's not normal. And I think that things are changing to fix that. And I think that there's been a lot of great work by both uh, people in the LGBTQ community and also allies as well to try and destigmatize that. But definitely, it's still a conversation. Like the coming out conversation is something that every single person in that community has. That while in some abstract sense, heterosexual people can relate to, they don't really have that conversation. That's not something that they're, they do. They have the expectation and they fulfill that expectation that they're going to be straight. So, why don't you quickly get into your article and talk about some of the reactions that you received after you wrote it? Um, the article was basically about um, what I talked about where this will keep people in the closet and why that's so upsetting and the, the, the struggle that it is to accept yourself and to be comfortable with who you are. Um, I, I knew I was writing to a primarily straight audience, um, uh, qu- quite a few people that I follow and follow me on Twitter are not fantasy football players. They're just gay guys that I talk to on Twitter. And um, I knew that the, they would see it. But I knew that the, the, the much larger audience that would see it would be people who I interact with over football who are straight, and particularly straight men. And uh, an incident happened um, last week um, that was pretty upsetting, and I, I'm not going to get into it. Um, but it, it, it made me want to write about how straight people are fairly oblivious to the different things that play in the wake of what happened around Orlando, you know, and I just wanted to kind of lay out what they were for them, and for them to read, because a lot of them seemed like they wanted to say something or they wanted to help and they didn't know how and they wanted to sympathize but they didn't know how. And um, it, it, there were a lot of other articles like that that I saw, um, you know, how to be a, an ally in the way that they know and, and, you know, the right things to say and the wrong things to say. And I also wanted to talk about how this narrative that is continuing to persist that the killer was gay himself um, or closeted anyway uh, led to what happened and why the constant barrage of whether it be anti-gay legislation or anti-gay um, religion or just casual homophobic jokes 
contribute to someone feeling that way and contribute to people seeing gay people as second-class citizens or what have you or something to make fun of or something to be ashamed of. And even on a very, very casual level, I have always tried to, to make people aware of when they're doing something, even something as simple as the expression butthurt. I have told people that, you know, it, it, you probably shouldn't use that expression because whether you realize it or not, what you're doing is you're, you're putting a negative connotation on anal sex. And a lot of people will say that's ridiculous. And a couple people will say, wow, I never thought of it that way. That's actually right. And this kind of dismissal of things like that from straight people, like, you know, that's ridiculous. Like, you know, they're, they're, you know, you know, I'm not, I'm not homophobic. You know, I, I like you. And, um, you know, you know, I'm not using that expression in an anti-gay way. And I, I, I just wish the reaction was more, you know, I never thought of it that way. That's, a, that's an interesting perspective I don't have. And that, that might be a stupid example, but there's a lot of things like that. Very casual, sometimes even inadvertent anti-gay language. Um, and the big thing was um, that uh, people who are Christian stop saying something along the lines of homosexuality is a sin, you know, but we're all sinners and no sin is better than any other. So it's not a big deal that I'm saying that. And that just, they really, people who say that don't realize what they're, they're saying to someone, that, that their love is, is a sin, it, it's evil, it's bad, it's something to be ashamed of and to repent for, and that you will be punished for acting upon. And I, I really wanted to sort of convey how, how damaging that is. And speaking of reactions that I got, and I got just crazy reaction um, to that piece. People um, people I didn't know were writing just really long messages that I, I, they were saying the most meaningful thing that was really overwhelming. Um, I tried to thank everyone individually who said something who reached out. Um, if I didn't thank you, um, you know, I would just know I, I meant to and thank you very much and I really appreciate it. Um, and I also want to say that there are several people that very obviously, um, you know, I'm, I'm fairly close with, and they didn't say anything, they didn't retweet the article, and I, I get that too, you know, I, yeah, I understand, and you don't have to, and I, I don't hold it against you. Um, and, but speaking of reaction to the, the Christian aspect of it, I knew that, um, Certain people who are very religious would, would take what I said the wrong way. And what I was really trying to say is that people who preach messages of discrimination and hate are not really Christian. They are using the word Christian to preach a message that the religion and Jesus and the teachings of the religion said, explicitly tell them not to do it. And they still do it, and they use Christianity as an excuse to do it. And I really wanted to convey that these people are as damaging to, to Christians as they are to anyone else, because so many people have the association with that religion of those people. And I don't. I know that, that that's not what that religion preaches, and that people who do that are disobeying it. And I, it was very interesting to me that one person who is, I, I knew was very religious, 
he sent me a message that was along the lines of, I hope you know that not all Christians are like that, and that's not what I teach my kids, and, um, you know, I don't say those things, and I don't think that way. And I sent a message back to him that said, I appreciate you reaching out, and I hope I'm not overstepping my bounds by saying this, but I know you already read it in the article, so I'm going to say it to you. I ask of you what I ask of anyone who is Christian and religious, and that is you don't tell people homosexuality is a sin. And I laid out for him the reasons why, and I thought it was a very straightforward and, and, you know, heartfelt message or whatever, and he did not respond to it. And I'm not all that surprised he didn't respond to it, but I, I was still a little disappointed because I assumed he took it, you know, the way I was not intending it. Then, after that happened, someone else who I had completely written out of talking to or, or interacting with in any way, because he publicly said on Twitter that homosexuality was a sin. And um, I told him why I didn't want him doing that, and, and I wasn't going to follow him if he was going to do that. And he wrote this email to me that made me steam out of my ears. It was so oblivious and insulting and defending himself, why it was okay for him to say that and why I was wrong and I wasn't entitled to my feelings. And I basically told him to go fuck himself and not talk to me again. And we really hadn't um, for a long time. And he sent me a message that I was shocked that he even read it. And he said, I read your piece, and now I understand why you were so upset, and I'm sorry, and I, I won't say that anymore. And I was I was just blown away. It, it's really the, the reactions you don't expect um, from people you don't expect them from. It, it really just... And just that alone, the fact that he won't say that anymore, I mean, that, that makes it worth writing. Like, that, that, that makes it worth it. And, um, yeah, I, I, I got just, some of the messages I got from people just made me just cry, just cry. They were so apologetic on behalf of straight people. They, they wanted to know how they could help. They thanked me for being so honest and open. And I, I don't consider myself any great activist or martyr or, or spokesperson or even, you know, I, I'm not sure that the things I said were all that, you know, universally true or, or positive. And I, I couldn't believe they were saying these things to me. It was so humbling and, and overwhelming. And, uh, yeah, it was really an experience that I hadn't had before. So I, I was really glad that it made that impact on people. And I want to thank everyone who shared it. Um, especially Evan Silva. Um, he is pretty much the biggest name in the fantasy industry, and he has over 100,000 followers on Twitter. And I, to my knowledge, I followed him for several years. I have never seen him post anything that wasn't about football. And the fact that he shared it, um, that, that really, that blew me away. And, uh, yeah, thank you very much, Evan. I appreciate that. No, that sounds great, and I mean, definitely you touched a lot of people uh, when you wrote that piece, and I mean, I read it, I shared it, and a lot of people shared it as well. It was really, really well written, and thanks to Bro Jackson also for allowing you for that space, right? Because, I mean, there aren't a lot of spaces like that on the internet that would have allowed you to write something like that, even in the wake of the tragedy. Uh, 
yeah, and particularly, um, and of course I don't know how to say his last name, but Varun Bose, uh, B-O-S-E, um, he is, uh, he works at Bleacher Report and is the editor at Rosex and used to write for Rotoviz a long time ago, and that's how I know him. And I reached out to him, and he said, sure. And not only did they post it, they didn't edit it. They didn't cut anything out. Um, and they didn't change anything I said. And I was, uh, I was very appreciative of that. So, um, and, and he encourages anyone who has something to say and doesn't have a platform to say it to get in contact with him and let him know. And uh, if it's appropriate, he will, he will give you the voice that you are seeking. So, yeah, I also think it's important to contextualize why safe spaces for gay people are so important and why this was such an infringement on that. And, I mean, I think that we both sort of spoke to it a little bit, but why don't you talk about your perception of why this was such a breach of the sanctuary that people are supposed to have? Um. We have actually been to two gay bars together, you and I. Um, that is true. So this is a, kind of like a, a, a very personal thing. Um, that, to, to speak about it with you, is that it, it really could have been anywhere. It, it, it happened to be Orlando. It happened to be that bar. But there's no reason it couldn't have been the bar we were at together in New York together. Um, there's no security guard at the door. There's no armed guard or anything like that. Anyone can just walk into those places. And that's how it should be. Anyone who feels like they need to be in a space where other people are like them and they're not going to be judged for who they are and something as simple as asking a guy for if he would like a drink or asking him for his number or saying, hi, I'm Ethan, what's your name? You can't do that in, in, in everyday life. I mean, you can, but it, it's pretty risky. And if you're not very openly gay and, and comfortable and confident with who you are, you see it as very dangerous. And, and you really have no idea what people's reactions are going to be. And, uh, it, it's very important for those spaces to exist for people to not only meet other people like them and have that comfort level, but to learn how how to be gay, where it's appropriate, when it's appropriate, um, and that, you know, it, it's not creepy, you're not weird, there's nothing wrong with you, and it, it's, a lot of people will describe, like, the first time they walk into a gay bar is like walking out of a closet, and they see all these happy gay men, and they're dancing together, and touching each other, and you can see the lights, and... Not all gay bars are like that, by the way. If you've never been to a gay bar, a lot of them are like the bars you go to where it's just guys sitting in a park drinking beer, but some gay bars are like that. Um, And it's just this this colorful and bright awakening that it's okay to be like this. I I can be like this. There are other people like me who live where I do, and I I don't have to pretend that I'm not this. And to make it so people are scared to go there, or when they go there, they're scared to be there. And to, to take away from, from that, it, it's just, uh, it's unspeakably disturbing um, to think about and to, to really worry about. I mean, I'll be honest, and this is just, I think everything you said was totally correct. I was out in New York last week, and there are guards out at the bars now. So what happened here? 
is definitely something that has been reinforced to the nth degree. And which, which of course is another false sense of security, which is what well, we do in this country. Well, I mean, part we, of we, it. We, we try to prevent what's already happened. That's why, you know, elementary schools have metal detectors and locked doors. And um, there was an armed guard in Orlando. And, and you know, it didn't, it didn't stop. It, it's just a false sense of security. And um, this, this arming ourselves to the teeth in this ultra recorded police state that we're. we're quickly spiraling towards is uh, also very disturbing. I totally agree. And I think that your lesson that you said about the bars and clubs, and I actually have two points I want to make on this one. We'll segue into our next sort of point is first of all, there's a difference between a gay bar and a gay dance club and pulse for the record was a dance club where people could actually really be themselves. It's funny. Actually, I've never actually done that. Yeah, exactly. Like, because we all have different experiences. And, like, I think another important point to make is, and this is one of the biggest lessons that I've learned, It and I would advise anyone who's in the closet, this would be sort of my advice to them, and I know you have a piece of advice for them as well, is that gay people aren't stereotypes. They're as heterogeneous as any other group. And, I mean, there's all kinds of people. You just have to know where to look and know where to make friends. And, you know, sometimes it's going to be tough to make new friends and it's going to be tough to put yourself out there, but you'll feel so much better after you do it. If you feel lonely, my biggest advice is just go on the Internet, go into like meetup.com. There are are groups for everything. There are groups for people who play laser tag. There are groups for people who bowl together. There are groups for people who rock climb together. There are groups for people who paint together. And a lot of those groups are gay-specific too. So I would advise people to just – Try to meet people, try to be open-minded, and, and take the chance and sort of take the leap, because otherwise, you're just going to be sitting alone your entire life, and that just makes everyone really sad, and nobody wants that. You're supposed to be happy. That's the point of life, and I think that's what a lot of people in the Pride movement really stand for. So, what's your advice that you would give people who may be living in the closet? Um, I, I can't stress this enough. Um, and, and the sad thing is that I, I think they all know this. Um, you'll regret for the rest of your life. I talked about this in the article too. Every day you didn't come out, um, you will live the rest of your life wondering what what would have been different. Um, who might I have met? Who would my friend be? Where would I be living? What would I be doing for work? Where would I have gone to college? Who would I have met there? Um, every day you wait is a day lost that you will then regret and you will wonder about. And you will not meet someone who regrets coming out or wishes they had waited longer. Um, even people who get disowned by their family or lose their job or lose their house. Um, or I've even talked to people who have experienced pretty extreme violence as a result of it. They still don't regret it. They still don't wish they had stayed in the closet. And um, you don't want to live with that regret. I live with a fair amount of that regret and those questions, and I cannot tell you how much it weighs on you, and you really need 
you need to take action when you're younger to avoid that ever happening. And the longer you wait, the worse it is and the harder it is. And I, I really, um, anyone who wants to reach out to me, um, as well as Ethan, Ethan's even better than I am as a person to reach out to, um, <laughs> you know, we're, we're always willing to talk and, and help you, you know, with whatever journey you're on. Definitely uh, agree, concur with that. Feel free to reach out. I'm happy to help. It says in my bio, I'm here to help. So that's definitely something that I agree with. And, and I think part of what really binds us all together is that we all do have that story of where we had to, like, jump over that cliff. And it is scary, and we know it's scary, and we've all been through it before. But um, once you make it, like... Once you land on the bottom, like, the grass is really, really green. And, and it's crazy how later in life, and the, the older I get, the more I am blown away by really young, very confident, very openly gay people. Um, one in particular right now is someone named Brendan Wooden, who you might know from a very funny meme where he was, like, striking bow poses during a newscast. Um, he has been this, this just outspoken advocate for... For um, you know, both gender gender identity rights and for gay rights, and he is so confident and and proud of who he is, and he is so young. He's been doing it since I believe he was fourteen or fifteen, and I think he's sixteen now. And I, I am just so inspired and amazed by people like that. The older I get, and when I was sixteen, I would have probably said the most hurtful and horrible things to someone like that. And um, now I, I, I think that's like one of the bravest people I, I, I know of. And he just people. And um, another one is um, someone named Braden Lange, who you might have seen on SportsCenter. Um, he was a 12-year-old openly gay lacrosse player. And he just he inspires the hell out of me. And I, I can't believe there are people that age who are that confident and willing to put themselves out there like that solely to help other people who are that young and experiencing those things. And I, people like that just blow me away, but and the older I get, the more so. All right, so we're going to move on to sports. And I want to talk about Michael Sam, because I, and also just in general, how the gay community treats sports. Uh, because I know that you have some very, very strong opinions about out sports as well. So we're going to tackle all of that in this portion. So... In terms of coming out in sports, what were your thoughts about the Michael Sam coming out experience, as it were? I think Michael Sam got some very bad advice. Um, I'm not sure who he got it from, but I think there were more than one person giving him some pretty horrible advice. Um, From what I am told by people who I trust to the utmost degree, um, as far as objective football prospect evaluators, people who do it professionally, uh, people who have nothing to lose by telling me so privately. I have asked several of them, any that I can reach out to, and I've said to them, if Michael Sam was straight, would he be in the NFL right now? And across the board, the answer with no hesitation is no, he would not. He was too small. Um, and by all accounts, he had, he didn't, he wasn't regarded as having the, the greatest awareness on the football field. And 
something like winning SEC Defensive Player of the Year, while it, it is a nice accolade, it, it does not predict NFL success. And based on his size and his, his measurables and what was known about him, you know, in strictly a football sense, he was no sure thing to be an NFL player. Um, he certainly wasn't so good that he could come out as the first openly gay football player prior to the draft and still find himself in a situation where he was guaranteed a roster spot. And I believe the Rams might have taken him for non-football reasons. And I'm not sure the Rams were the only ones that were a part of that decision. Um, I think Michael Sam was given very bad advice by a lot of people and was manipulated to the highest degree by people serving their own interests, uh, whether it be financial or political. And I, I, it, it's very sad that it ended the way it did. Um, I spoke to someone, it, this might have been you actually, um, I forget who told me this, but they or a friend of theirs ran into Michael Sam when he was in Montreal. That was not he, me. When he was with the Alouettes and, um, he was, uh, just strange. He, he was very strange to interact with. He seemed very, very sad, very shy, and and I felt really bad about that. I, I really I hate that it ended up the way it did. I know he is no longer with the man. Yes, that was why he was so upset in Montreal because they were there was a lot of shit going on with that family. That basically, and I I can't get into too much detail. Um, first of all, it's really important to know that Michael Sam did not come out voluntarily. He was outed. Uh, someone was going to out him if he hadn't come out. And, I mean, I, I think that, to be fair to him, like, I do love the fact he owned his story. I think he would have been picked higher if he hadn't come out when he did, which is a sad indication, but I mean, this is a guy who was at the Senior Bowl, which at least shows that colleges are looking at you, I mean, not colleges, pro scouts are looking at you, it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get drafted, but he didn't perform well there, he didn't have a good combine, but I still think that he would have ended up getting picked in the 6th or 7th round, and I think, if you look at guys like Geno Smith, Face Puncher, IKN Kampali, and Prince Shembo, Neither of those guys should have been picked over Michael Sam, period. Like, they didn't even have good numbers. And Gimpali had worse numbers than Sam, and he had awful tape, too. So, I, honestly, I think that probably coming out may have hurt him a little bit. I I do, now I think I'm coming around to the fact that part of the reason he was picked was due to non-football-related reasons, which is cynical. But, I mean, I knew from the moment that he came out that they are going to make sure that something good happened. I do think that from what I saw in the preseason, though, he should have been on a roster to start 2014. He played really well, and something that didn't get a lot of press, he lost 20 pounds from the end of the combine to when he ended up in St. Louis. He lost a lot of weight. He dropped at least a tenth of a second off of his 40, according to people who are measuring him and testing his speed. He looked good in camp, and he looked really, really good in the preseason. He was, I think he had, like, two sacks and six hurries. He was up there with Ethan Westbrooks, who, of course, is the person who beat him out for the spot. And 
when he got cut there, though, because I don't think that the Rams were necessarily going to ever keep him, because there was way too much media hype around what was going on. And I think that part of the issue was that some media members asked stupid questions in press conferences in St. Louis. Uh, there was one guy who asked, I think it was actually a woman, it was one of ESPN's reporters, who asked a lineman, like, are you nervous when Michael Sam is in the shower with you? And that's not a good question to ask. It's not prudent. Was that Jake Long? He tweeted out that the reporter was an idiot or something like that. Yeah, it's just a dumb question. Like, why would you ask that? It's completely, it's not relevant, and it isn't a question that should have been asked in that context. But there were a lot of questions like that. And I honestly, even though I think that distractions is a stupid, stupid thing, it just makes it easier for them to cut somebody. And I was actually, I was actually going to say that yeah. as, as callous as it sounds, and really as often as we use it as a joke, the idea that a player is a distraction to his teammates is a very real thing. And whether it's right or it's wrong, the fact that he was there was getting the kind of media coverage and the kind of attention that distracts people. And, you know, it shouldn't matter. No, of course it shouldn't matter, but it does. And, and it, it's, it's hard from a business sense to ethically blame them for, for seeing it as the distraction that it was. And another thing is, while we will always have him sacking Johnny Manziel in the, in the preseason and making the, the money sign, um, <laughs> that was the, fact that, the fact that he made the television arrangements that he did immediately following the draft. Well, yeah, that was so, bad advice. That was I'm bad not, advice. I am honestly not sure how serious he was about being a career football player. Um, and while he might have just been taking bad advice, and that, you know, maybe he loved football, and that's a really stupid thing to say, um, I'm not sure he, he was making a long-term play to be a career football player. But, uh, again, that might be just completely wrong. I'll, I mean, I'll put it this way. I think... There were some, I think, and you talked about this, but some of his his friends were in his ear and they were telling him to take the money and make his money while he could. And I don't blame him for doing that, to be honest, totally, because, you know, make your money. But it didn't play well with a lot of NFL people because it just played into the narrative they'd already made. And it, it really did, I feel, hurt him down the road. And it's tough to do because it's a really hard balance where I respect the fact that he was going to try and make money, but I also get that he, uh, I mean, it, it, it was something that he was doing that definitely adversely affected perception of other teams. And I mean, the Cowboys sign him, that wasn't even really real. That was pretty much just a publicity stunt. We saw the same thing with multiple other things they've done. So there was no hope there. And then yeah, part of the yeah, I was actually hopeful he would stick with the Cowboys. Me too. The Rams were really linebacker rich. The Cowboys weren't. Yeah. And I, I actually was naive enough to think that that might have actually been a football decision. No, I thought it was a better move. But then when he didn't get off the practice squad, it became pretty clear that that wasn't going to be a thing. And then the Alouettes happened, and then he sort of dropped out the face of the earth. And I don't know. I mean, it's it's just like one of those things where – there were a lot of things that happened. Uh, you mentioned his boyfriend at the time, who his family was dealing with a lot of really, really shady stuff. 
Um, there is a lot of messiness happening there. And by the same note, I, I just, I, I don't think that people were making decisions in his best interest. And I think he sort of became propelled by the wave of being famous, uh, which happens to a lot of athletes after they come out. I mean, it happened with Jason Collins too. So I, I, I also want to make it clear when I say that he wasn't good enough to come out prior to the draft. Uh, what I mean is he wasn't good enough where he could come out prior to the draft and it wouldn't matter. Um, yeah. I, no, no one should ever stay in the closet. Everyone should come out and be very loud and proud about it. And I absolutely love the fact that Michael Sand came out. And I also love the fact that his entire Missouri team knew about it. Um, his entire senior season. And while it might have been, you know, whispered about, it was not known in the media. And for all the, the shit and the rumors that the media publicly puts out there, I was very impressed that there must have been quite a few people who knew about him and probably know about other gay players, and they yep. don't help them. And I, I actually took that as a, as a real positive away from it. Um, I was pleasantly surprised that, so much straight football media knew about it, and he wasn't publicly outed. And that's important you know, to note, that there are a lot of players in football who may be out to their teams, uh, but they don't make it public, which I think the merits are worth debating uh, in some ways. I th- do you, So I'm going to ask you, actually, do you think that if you are a football player and you're out to your locker room that you have a responsibility to be to come out publicly. I, uh, and we've talked about this before, I struggle with this terribly. Um, no it's one really hard. to come out against their will, and no one should um, be outed by other people, and um, if someone wants to not make that known, that is their prerogative, but I think someone like an NFL football player really has an obligation to young gay kids who think they're the only ones like them in the world. And I I honestly think that an NFL player, especially if he was very well-known and good, came out, it would save a countless number of lives, um, both through suicide prevention. Um, I I don't, I I think people are generally aware, but I don't know if straight people are aware that, um, the suicide rates among gay youth is is disgustingly high, um, and it's our one of our largest problems um, that we try desperately to fight against. And um, it's also very personal for me. My brother committed suicide um, from a combination of gambling addiction and depression, and it, it, that's a very personal thing to me. And it, it, it affects me greatly. I really, truly believe that if an NFL player came out, he could prevent a lot of suicides. And not only that, it would go a long way towards acceptance um, of of gay football players at a youth level from their teammates and the idea that gay people can play football and be into sports. Um, And it's interesting watching the... um, the O.J. Made in America documentary and how the, a lot of the black community thought he had an obligation to um, do certain things and say certain things and be more like Jim Brown or Bill Russell and loudly be an advocate for civil rights. And 
OJ didn't feel an obligation to do that. And there's even an aspect in that documentary, if you watch it, which everyone should, whether you were alive or not, it, it is an unbelievable documentary about race in this country and where we're at now is very much related to where we were at then. And um, it, 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 there's a very interesting concept that by, that by shunning that when he was younger, O.J. was accepted by the white world as a celebrity in a way that Bill Russell and Jim Brown never were. And O.J. was seen by little black kids as, you know, I can do anything I want. White America will accept me if I can be like O.J. And um, I, I can do anything. I can be a spokesman for a, a television ad campaign, and I can be a broadcaster on TV. And um, Bill Russell and Jim Brown never got those opportunities. And, and maybe the way O.J. went about it, while it, it at the time seemed like he had an obligation to fulfill, maybe by not doing it, he reached a different level of inspiration or acceptance for people. And um, it, it's very difficult to say that NFL players should come out and be selfless and give up their probably give up a, a individual success, even though what we're seeing with gay athletes who come out is they do become these major celebrities. It is a very remarkable thing. Um, and, and if a football player is not very well known, if he does come out, it will propel him in a way that football wouldn't. Um, it, it's very difficult to ask someone to take a sacrifice like that for the greater good. Um, the things they would hear from teammates, the things they would hear from people in the stands, the things they would hear from people on the internet and in the street, they would receive all kinds of hate mail. It, it would be a very difficult life to live. And it's very, very hard for me to sit on my couch or on Twitter and say, you know, these guys have an obligation to do that. Um, and I know you, when we've talked about this before, you also feel that it, it it's a, it's a large burden to place on them. Yeah. So I, so I just look at the, at the time. We've already talked for over an hour. So two more things on this topic, and then we will move on to a very abridged stuff portion. So, yeah, you can oh no, we're not eliminating anything. This is all gold. We're keeping everything. So <laughs> <laughs> we're keeping, we're keeping, we're keeping the friggin' everything. Yeah, totally. So I want to hit on two more points. One is, I want to talk about the gay sports media. Uh, specifically, I want to talk about OutSports, because you have some very strong opinions about OutSports. Uh, so, for those who don't know, OutSports is an SB Nation site that caters to the gay community. It's been around for a really long time. It was once independent sites run by uh, Jim Bazinski and Sid Ziegler. And, I mean, I I read it a lot when I was younger. I don't read it as much now. I think I kind of got over it. Um, yeah, why don't we talk about what your thoughts are about Sid Ziegler and Outsports? So, I, I, I don't encourage anyone to actually go to that website. <laughs> I, know, I know just talking about it will make people go to it. And this is also no, my No, you know what? No, I, I kind of disagree. I think it's good for people. I, and this is where we disagree a little bit on this issue. I think Outsports is important for people who are still coming to terms with their sexuality. Because I do think it's nice to know there are other people who like sports who are gay. I think at a time they were unique in that way, but now you can go on any number of social media sites or other websites. Or just follow me on Twitter or follow Mocker. Then we're good. But, yeah. Anyway, go on. Sorry. 
um, but um, yeah, I, I think they once served that purpose, um, which was very important, and now they are really not unique in that way. Um, and some of what they disseminate there is a bit uh, dangerous, we'll call it. Um, but this is my problem with um, just talking about it. Um, is the same problem I have when people will make fun of someone like Skip Bayless or Clay Travis or Stephen A. Smith. Um, they'll say, look at how dumb what this person is saying is, look at how ridiculous what they're saying is, and they're just, they're playing a character to get your attention, and you're giving them the attention they want, and what they're saying is probably not even something they actually believe. Um, so just, just discussing this already is, is, you know, going against, uh, you know, my belief in that way. Um, but the, there are a few different things at play here. One is that the, the guy who runs that site very openly uh, is Republican. He votes Republican. And uh, he has said openly supported things of Donald Trump. Wait, it, 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 I thought he supported Hillary. Uh, I guess you, you would have to not have him muted on Twitter to know that and not just <laughs> yeah. send you what he says. Um, but the thing, but, the thing he said about Obama was he said that have you noticed how Obama changes his voice when he talks to black people, which is pretty bad? We'll, we'll get to that in a second. But, uh, <laughs> the, the, that's, the, the main thing is that um, I, the current Republican Party's platform is so anti-gay, not to mention other things, it, it, not to mention anti-poor people and anti-minorities and anti-immigrants and anti-anything that is not, you know, uh, already privileged. And it, the, I am not a Democrat. I've never been registered with the Democratic Party. Um, I live in California, and I do not particularly care for a Democratic governor. I did not vote for him in the last election. Um, I didn't vote for the Republican either, but I did not vote for him. Um, and I cannot, in good conscience, as a gay person or a human being, vote for any Republican currently because their current platform is so absolutely disgusting to me. And particularly Donald Trump and any gay person who supports him or will exclusively vote Republican, I... I really question their motives for what they're doing if they label themselves as a gay activist because they are so anti-gay on that base level that it's very hard to take them seriously as wanting anyone to have a better life. That's to start. Second is, he's pretty racist. And this also was something that I had noticed on their site for a long time, was that it was mostly pretty white boys, and that's there's really no other way to describe it. They were very pretty white boys, and their stories became less and less interesting. Uh, originally, the people that were on that website were uh, often high-caliber athletes, D1 athletes, something of that nature, uh, college athletes, people who had gone through a different or oppressive coming out, um, and, and had interesting stories to tell. And over time, they were making the definition of athlete looser and looser. Um, I remember there were high school. There was one that was a high school golfer that was on there. Um, there were other things uh, that that really were were questionable as far as calling them an athlete. Uh, 
I mean, I played football and I was part of the cross country team in high school, and I'm the furthest thing from an athlete you've ever seen in your life. And um, what all these guys did have in common was they were very pretty and they were white and they were young, and they would always have these really strange headshots, like modeling pictures that went along with the article. The pictures were never candid. They were never really with their families. Um, a lot of times they were kind of what you'd see on a dating profile. They might have been shirtless. It was, it was very obvious objectification. And from what I have been told from people who would know these things, white boys get far more clicks than anyone else. And the prettier they are, the more clicks they get. Um, and if they have a picture, they get a lot more clicks, regardless of what it's about. And it seemed very obvious to me over time that they were doing this. Then, after I thought that for a long time, I was told that there was a young black college basketball player who emailed them and tried to come out through their site, and they had completely ignored him. And he had gotten other people who he knew them to reach out to them and be like, hey, this kid emailed you, and you ignored him. And it took a lot of effort for them to get them to run his story, and after they ran his story, they went back to completely ignoring him. And had that happened in isolation, I probably wouldn't have been so cynical of it, but the fact that I already thought they were pretty racist to begin with, and then that happened, um, kind of, you know, confirms what I believe. Then I saw, and this was more recently, and this is when I just, I really got fed up, and this was before that comment about Obama speaking with a, a black accent or whatever the hell he was implying there. Um, he heavily criticized, um, I believe his name is Jorge Ramos, um, who is seen as one of the most prominent Latinos in this country, certainly one of the most prominent Latino media members. And he was asking Trump, questions at a press conference about the disgusting things he says about Mexicans and immigrants, and Trump was completely writing him off and had him thrown out of the press conference, and the gay Latino community, at least from what I was seeing on Twitter, was immediately enraged by this. They were very, very upset, because this man is very, very well respected for what he does, and... There was the outsports guy in the middle of the conversation of these Latino men saying he was rude and he had it coming and he should have waited his turn and he was, I don't know what other names he called them, but they got very upset by that and they told him, You're, you are being racist right now. The things you are saying, they are racist. And his response, instead of saying, which someone who works in advocacy for so long, you'd think he would be more sensitive to these things. Instead of saying, I'm sorry, you know, I'm not a part of this community. I apologize. I, I didn't mean to upset you. I will consider what you're saying and think about what I say more carefully. He got very defensive. He laughed at them. He told them why they weren't entitled to their feelings. He told them why he wasn't racist and that was ridiculous. And he continued saying the things he was saying that they were telling him was upsetting them so much. And, it really gets me that someone is told over and over again, you're kind of racist, and his reaction is continually to laugh and dismiss it, and then work in a field of 
what he purports to be advocacy. Um, that bothers the ever-loving shit out of me. And um, I, while I, I appreciate the space that it provides to people who don't have that space other place, and I understand that it, it probably serves a very important purpose to a lot of people, I wish that they would do it somewhere other than that that website, and there are other places these days where you can have that voice heard, and you can you can talk like that, and um, I, it's it's sad. It, you know, this isn't something I want to do. I don't I don't want to be at odds with these people. I don't want to have beef with these people. At one time, I probably would have thought writing for them about fantasy football would have been cool, and we are very friendly. And I love to death the person that does write about fantasy football for them. And I hate the fact that I can't really openly promote his work that he does on that site um, and feel good about it because I, I really like the stuff he writes and I love him as a person. And um, it, it, it makes me sad. It, it really does. Um, and uh, it, it's also part of a, a little uncomfortable thing that I'm seeing um, with Nike um, the, the mass marketing of um, LG, two LGBT people um, and um, a, a lot of the corporate sponsorship and pride parades and things of that nature, um, it, it seems like people are kind of taking advantage of something and losing sight of, of what's important. And, um, uh, yeah, it's just it's just really disappointing. It, it, more than anything, it's, it's, it's really disappointing. So you said a lot there. I will say, before I ask my last question about this segment, I do think that it is important to have a site like that because I do think if you're a high school kid and you play a sport and you're gay, it's nice to see there are other high school kids who play sports that are gay. I think I think that for that level, it's kind of a nice thing, but if you're going to just market yourself as a site like that, don't report yourself to be an actual news site. That That's probably where I would create a delineation. Maybe leave that as a sub-site and have some more actual news on an actual news site that isn't just posting pictures of barely legal or non-legal white high school athletes because that pretty much is what it's turned into. But anyway, no, I want to move on to the last question. No, I'm just going to say don't ignore people who aren't so pretty or aren't yeah. so white if you want to tell their story in your space because – and don't deny that you did it after the fact when everyone knows that it's true. Yeah, totally agree with that. So to end it, I think that we've talked a lot tonight about sort of the shooting, how it made us feel, why, why we felt personally victimized by it, and and we tried to give some advice – to our community, but I also want to open it up into a larger sense. What do you think has to happen on a larger scale to make sure that something like Pulse doesn't happen anymore? Uh, what I talked about earlier, people need to stop uh, using religion and disseminating ideas of, of sin. Um, I think that is actually the single leading contributor to uh, discrimination and violence against LGBT people. Um, that's number one. Uh, it needs to completely leave politics. Uh, people need to, with the idea that uh, gay adoption and gay marriage and um, the bathroom shit, my God. That shit people, has to stop, especially after this past week. 
Yeah, that needs to leave the political conversation, and gay people need to not be talked about as a different set of human beings with their own rules. Um, uh, I, and uh, I don't. I'm not even talking about um, gun control when I say there needs to be a change in politics. I'm just talking about uh, about gay people and. Um, the, the casual homophobia needs to stop too. People need to stop insulting people um, as, as people need to stop using gay as an insult. They need to stop um, making fun of people who do effeminate things as being gay. Uh, and again, people engage in this who have nothing against gay people, and they don't really appreciate how how much it contributes to the problem. And uh, people just really need to. Uh, um, uh, something that uh, saying no homo after saying something stop saying that but uh, something like that like you don't think so but that really contributes to it and that that just needs to leave our our society and it will um but it's going to take a while so we run to the stuff portion i agree with you on all of that and we're going to talk about marijuana nice little segue so people don't realize that you used to trim marijuana that was a job um, that you had. Um, that that was something I did for work briefly. Um, but um, yeah, I um, I suffer from anorexia and uh, insomnia and anxiety. And um, I, I've said this before on Twitter, and I, I really mean it. Without marijuana to cure those things, I'm not so sure where I'd be today. Um, it, it's a little scary to think about. Um, uh, for those who are unaware, anorexia does, does pretty terrible things to your insides, and uh, there was a point that I um, I got pretty pretty dangerously thin, and uh, the only time I ever got hungry was was smoking weed. Um, and uh, the the concept of um, medicinal marijuana versus recreational marijuana is very funny to me because I. I People want to talk about. I know people who have taken un, uh, paid medical leaves from their jobs for stress, and the idea that if you're smoking marijuana, one of the reasons isn't to relax and, and relieve stress, and, and that wouldn't be a medical property. I mean, it, it's such a silly conversation to me. And um, so, so yes, I um, I live in an area where quite a bit of marijuana is grown, um, and every fall. Uh, it is very easy to get work cutting the leaves off of it to look like the product that ends up in your hands, and it pays very well. And um, yeah, I, I have done that before. That is true. So overall, what are your thoughts about decriminalization? I'm guessing you are very supportive of it. It's so hard for me. Um, the whole idea of uh, the libertarian, libertarian idea of the government regulating what you do and what you eat and what you ingest, and you have to be a certain age to buy this, and um, you can, can get this if you have a doctor's note, but not this. It's so convoluted and political and nonsensical. But at the same time, I don't think making every substance available to everyone is the answer either. So I struggle very badly with um, what should be legal, what shouldn't, and to whom. Um, what I do know is that what is going on in Colorado, where they are legally charging 33% sales tax on marijuana, is not a 
fucking solution to everything. The British Tea Party was over a tax that was much smaller than that. And um, I think it's absolutely outrageous that people see that as a victory. And the answer to marijuana being illegal and unavailable is sure as hell not to give uh, the government $1 for every three you're spending on it. And um, I think we're a long way from anything that makes sense. I could just imagine, like, the the Denver Tree Party or something. Like, a bunch of people, like, trying to rebel against the government by, like, lighting something on fire. I don't think they'd throw their weed in the river. Yeah, that wouldn't be the weed. That would not be the weed. They'd throw something else away. Um, um, and there's also a lot of the legalization bills that come up have some pretty bad things hidden in them. Um, the one that was up in Ohio was very controversial recently. There was a very good Vice episode about it that I recommend you watch. Um, and while it was going to make marijuana legal, it was only going to make it legal for about five people to grow it. And they were all very, very wealthy people who were very heavily invested in getting this measure passed. And... Even though you were voting to make it legal, you were also voting that you could not grow your own, um, and it, it was regulating it very heavily, and um, you do not want that um, as a marijuana consumer. You do not want it to be commercially produced on that level. Trust me, you do not want the Budweiser version of whatever, or Marlboro version of whatever. Oh, God, Budweiser weed, that sounds awful. Um, so, oh, that sounds so bad. That happened in 2010 in California. They tried to pass a similar bill. And it was voted down, and people who smoked weed were very mad at the grower community for not supporting it because they were all going to lose their jobs. And um, you really got to be careful. There's a lot of people trying to um, pass bills in their own interests. And, uh, yeah, don't pay 33% sales tax and don't vote to let five old white assholes grow your weed. Be very careful about what you vote for. So fascinating. I had not known that much about the decriminalization bills, so that's good for everyone. We all learned something today. I hope you learned at least one thing today, and it's that. Final question. (laughs) Final question. Most important question. um, As someone who has smoked for a while, what is your favorite strain? Um, it's something you'll probably never see, uh, called hash plant because it's usually turned into hash. Um, it's very ugly. It does not yield very much. And the reason most people grow it is to turn it into very, very high quality hash. Um, but, uh, it's got, it it will, uh, it'll make you absolutely silly, um, which is, which is what I, what I enjoy. Um, so yeah, if you ever have the opportunity, um, hash plant. I will remember the name. And that is it for this week's <laughs> Hammer Time Podcast. A 14-team mocker. We covered so much ground. Thank you so much for what you write, what you do on a regular basis. Thank you for being honest. I know that um, you speak your mind all the time, and I think that personally, like, I, I think it's great. I know not everyone agrees with you, but I definitely hope that they respect at least the fact that you say what's on your mind and that you stick up for people who – may not always get stuck up for. So, yeah, thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. This was much more fun than just talking about fantasy football, even though yeah. I probably spoke way too much about fantasy football. Uh, you, <laughs> you know what? I think we're fine. I think that this will be a nice, long podcast for people, and they're going to love it. And that's it for this week's edition yeah. of the Hammer Time Podcast. Yeah, I just want to say, I want to say, 
the, the last thing. We have a league that we play in together, and I am going to whoop your ass. Once I hey, neither of us made the playoffs last year, so we both looked I awful. Well, I didn't make the playoffs. I stopped caring. <laughs> <laughs> like I stopped caring when all my players got injured. That was pretty bad. But anyway, um, yeah, that's it for this week's Hammer Time podcast. I'm your host, Ethan Hammerman. Find me on Twitter. Leave us feedback. Uh, next week, we'll be back with a vengeance. And until then, talk to you later. All right, that was really fun. Good yeah, shit. That was great.